Welcome to Sal on Air. I'm Ruth Dickey, Executive Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Sal on Air is a podcast featuring some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 30 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Support for the inaugural season of Sal on Air comes from the M.J. Murdoch Charitable Trust. In this episode, we hear from Elizabeth Strout, who joined us in January 2011 at Benaroya Hall for a talk on why fiction matters. Following the talk, Linda Bowers, then Executive Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures, interviews Strout. At the time of her visit, Strout had gained acclaim for her works, including Amy and Isabel and Olive Kitteridge, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 2009. Since then, she has published the best-selling novels The Burgess Boys and My Name is Lucy Barton. Strout's talk reveals why she writes fiction and what she hopes to gift to the reader. Strout begins her talk with the story of an offhand comment at a wedding reception as a man characterized his own novelist daughter by saying, My daughter devotes herself to telling lies. Strout, incensed by such a condemnation of her profession, refutes that characterization of writers and in the process furthers our understanding of why fiction matters. Along the way, Strout touches on how, through reading John Updike's rabbit books and understanding the despicable character Harry Angstrom, she learned to be a more compassionate person. With her signature dry New England wit, Strout shares stories from her childhood, her battle with writer's block, and the stand-up comedy routine that resulted, and her belief that reading fiction is the one guaranteed way to, in her words, find out what it means to be human. Here's Elizabeth Strout presenting her talk on why fiction matters, followed by a conversation with Linda Bowers. Hi. Thank you. Um, Wow, I wasn't sure I'd get here, but I am here, and you're all here, and I appreciate it. I want to thank the Seattle Arts and Lecture Series for inviting me, and um, I really want to thank you all for for being here tonight um, and for letting me sit. um, I had a few thoughts about Seattle this afternoon that I thought I'd try and share with you before I actually uh, talked about why fiction matters. It was 13 years ago that I first saw Seattle. I'm sorry to say that there's an awful lot of this country that I, well, it's a big country, but there's an awful lot of this country that I never um, saw. And Seattle was one of those cities. And and when my book, first book, Amy and Isabel, was published, my um, publisher sent me on a book tour, which sounds so romantic (laughs) and um, was actually quite terrifying for me and um, it was the sort of thing that I realized right away doesn't get much sympathy because if you're lucky enough to get a book tour you're not supposed to complain about it but I was really for the first time I understood the phrase hospitalized for exhaustion I I wasn't but I understood it and um, (laughs) And so I, I was halfway through the tour and I came to Seattle and I was, I was really feeling quite 
uh, shaky and exhausted and, and scared. And they have people call media escorts that will take a writer from place to place. And so this media escort met me and she was absolutely lovely. She was probably in her 20s. I can still remember what she looked like. And I came off the plane thinking I might have to cancel the tour. And she just took one look at me and she said, it's okay. You don't have to do anything for an hour and a half. And she drove me in her car to a parking lot somewhere in Seattle. And she said, I'm not going to talk to you. And she put the seat down. And there was just something about her. It wasn't just that she was nice. There was something really magical about that and completely restorative. And she'd glance at me every so often and just kind of smile. And I um, was cured. And I wrote to her boss. I said, who's your boss? And I wrote her boss a letter saying that she had saved the book tour for me. I can't remember the young woman's name. And today when I was thinking about that and, and thinking how wonderful Seattle was after that, um, it, it occurred to me that for me that's actually a lot like um, when people say they can't remember the name of a book, but they remember something in it and they can't remember who wrote it. And I think it doesn't matter really if we can't remember the name of the book. And it certainly doesn't matter if we can't remember the author because what happens to us in, if there's some piece of a book that can come to us and give us what happened to me in that car, which is a moment's respite from the complications and, and terrors of, of everyday life, then, um, then that's actually what the meaning is. And, and, um, and Seattle has always carried that meaning for me because of this woman whose name I can't remember. And the day was, the sky was very blue and it was spring and the trees were all in flower and I kept saying to everybody, I love Seattle, I love Seattle. And they said, well, you're not seeing it on a typical day, but that's nice of you. <laughs> and the second time I came back, the sky was still really blue and the, the trees were flowering again. And I thought, well, obviously Seattle's gorgeous and people who live here don't really know what they're talking about. <laughs> and... After that, every time I've come back, it has been raining. <laughs> but it's never changed how I feel about this place. Um, there seems to be some sort of integrity to it that, that I, um, I, I'm very drawn to. And I, I have very visceral responses to places. Place is very important to me. And I also thought, as I looked out the window of the hotel um, as, as this afternoon went, by, I thought, and I saw Macy's down, down the street. I don't know if it is Macy's, but it said Macy's. And, um, and I thought, oh, you know, this is what Syracuse was supposed to be. Um, because Syracuse was the only other city. Well, not, I never lived in Syracuse, but Syracuse was the only city that I ever lived in outside of New England for a long um, time. I went, what I'm trying to say is by the time I moved to Syracuse, I was moved to Syracuse to go to law school in 1979. And until then, except for living in England one year, I had never lived outside of New England. And Syracuse had a, had a pull on me. And I would wander around and not go to law classes and, and, um, and go downtown to the department stores that were there. And, and um, I just I loved the sense of, of city, although I don't think that um, Syracuse is probably loved by that many people who don't live there. But I love it. And, um, and when I dropped out of law school, and you know, my father said, well, 
what do you think you're going to do? I said, I'm going to work in a department store in Syracuse. <laughs> and um, I did. I thought it would be so glamorous, and it wasn't at all glamorous. Um, you're supposed to sell things if you work in a department store. <laughs> and my manager came to me one day and said, you know, if somebody comes in and tries on a skirt, you're supposed to follow them into the dressing room and say, this blouse would look really nice with that skirt. And I, I couldn't do that, um, partly because I didn't know what dress blouse looked good with a skirt, but also because it, I didn't like pushy sales clerk, you know, so it didn't really work, and they sent me up to mattresses and... And um, there were probably, you know, there were false sentences said on my part, I will tell you. When people said, once, maybe once every th few days somebody would come up to look at mattresses and I, I didn't know anything about them. <laughs> anyway, um, I'm, I'm here to talk to you seriously about um, why, why fiction matters. And I'm, I'm sorry that I can't think of any um, segue <laughs> from Syracuse <laughs> to why fiction matters. I, I should have thought about that, but um, anyway, um, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that there, uh, I, I moved recently in, in the last couple of months in New York from one apartment to another, and I had a chance to go over all sorts of papers the way you do when you move. And I, I came across an incident that I had written down the way writers write things down. And so um, this is what I'm going to start with. It made me think, because um, I had forgotten it. Uh, I was at a wedding reception, and um, I was sitting next to a man I didn't know very well, but I knew that he was very successful in his field of medicine, and I also knew that his daughter was a novelist. And halfway through the evening, the man said to the table, rather vehemently and with real disgust, my daughter devotes her life to telling lies. And I kept my mouth shut. But as I go over this in my mind, um, I think, I believe that that man believed what he said, that his fiction writing daughter devoted her life to telling lies. So now I don't want to keep my mouth shut, and I'm going to sit here and, and refute the statement and tell you why I think um, that quite the opposite is true. I really do think the opposite is true, if I can just... Um, excuse me. <laughs> um, I honestly do. I do think that in good fiction, you're not finding lies, but you are finding some of the truest things. That's what I would hope. So I'm going to talk about why I think it matters that we find those things. And I'll even tell you, try and tell you what I think that phrase means, the truest things. So let me start by talking about our limitation of view. I'll point out an obvious, um, it seems very obvious, but to me it's desperately important fact that we will never know what it's like to be another person. Not really. And the knowledge of that has come to me in increments throughout my life, but there's one uh, particular moment when I, when I first feel that I began to see this. I grew up in the woods um, in New Hampshire and Maine, and for many years in New Hampshire, we, there was not another house in sight near ours. 
Then a young couple moved in and built a house, and it was a very sweet house, and they had window boxes and a little white fence even in it. And the couple who moved in was very kind, and in another year they had a baby. And one night when my parents were out of town, uh, I babysat for the baby next door, and I ended up spending the night there because my parents were gone. So in the morning, the woman of that house made French toast for breakfast, and she cut it in triangles, and she sprinkled it with confectionery sugar. And in my entire life, short as it was at that time, I had never seen such perfection. And when my parents returned, I told my mother about this in great detail, um, very careful detail, because I'm sure I was hoping that she might take a hint and think about preparing breakfast. <laughs> Um, in this exquisite manner. But when I got done going on about my observations of how lovely the woman was and everything and her decent husband and all that, my mother just looked at me for a very long time and she said, just remember, Elizabeth, you never know. <laughs> well... <laughs> It had a real impact on me, and, um, <laughs> but over the years, I've had to agree more and more that, that I didn't know and I don't know. Um, I don't have any idea, really, what went on in that pretty house, and I certainly have no idea what went on in their minds, and as I've gotten older, I have more and more respect for the fact that they probably didn't know what went on in each other's minds either. But my point is this, that we may think we know our neighbors and we really think we know our loved ones and our children and our best friends who share confidences with us. But I think my mother was right. We never really do know. And this has always made me sad. I have always been plagued by the question, what does it feel like to be another person? Recently, I met a woman and she said to me, I never think about what it feels like to be another person. And I thought, well, what does that feel like? <laughs> and, I, and I've thought about it a number of times. I even thought about it recently, walking, walking somewhere. Just recently, I thought, okay, what, what do you do with your mind? Um, but I think that fiction is the place where we come the closest to knowing what it might feel like to be another person, or at least we get real glimpses. Um, I, I think that most people here probably, hopefully, can remember the first time um, they read a book and thought, oh, that's like me, I've had that thought. Um, even if it's not such a monumental thought, there's something on some page somewhere um, where we, we get that fleeting recognition of, of the self. So why does it matter if we recognize ourselves in books? Why does it matter if we contemplate what it feels like to be somebody else? In Ulysses, James Joyce refers to the painful character of the ultimate functions of separate existence. That James Joyce. <laughs> the painful character of the ultimate functions of separate existence. So if we are, as I like to think, basically more alike than we are different, we're sti we still need to acknowledge that those differences have their own singularity and character and, and can actually, I think, be quite painful. So fiction is there to let us know we're not alone, that whatever we've thought and felt has probably been thought and felt before. 
I know a woman who doesn't read any fiction or poetry. She's not interested. She's made that clear. Um, it's simply not her thing. Okay. Anyway, I see this woman about once a year. Um, and the last time I saw her, she said, boy, you know, life is so strange. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, really, you think? <laughs> and I think this woman is, you know, I guess what you'd call middle-aged young middle-aged, and she continued, she went on and she said, well, it's just not at all like what I thought it would be. I said, okay. And she said, you know how when you're young and you think you're going to do it all different and you're going to do it better than your parents did? And I said, well, you know, yeah, we all think we're going to do it better than our parents did. Um, and she said, I wanted kids and I have them and I love them, of course, but they drive me nuts and being married, you know, that's, man, you know, that's a lot, she said. And and she laughed, and she said, I don't know, I just didn't know it would be like this. And then she said, I mean, it's all kind of ickily human. <laughs> and I thought to myself, sweetheart, you should read more. <laughs> and I mean it. I really mean it. Because where else do we learn about life? Where else do we learn about what she called that ickily human stuff? The fact that, yeah, people are so human. They're petulant, and they're needy, and they snore, and they get sick. Or they squander days of health, and they worry us. They confuse us. They drink too much, or they don't drink at all, which makes you feel dreadful if you need a glass of wine. <laughs> and they can break your hearts with just one glance of their vulnerability. And they can be unbelievably kind. So where do we learn this stuff? We don't learn it on some TV reality show. And in fact, I think that much of television is popular for the very reason that it doesn't require us to think in complicated ways. Things are presented cartoonishly large. Here's a pretty girl who's been done wrong. Here's a sensitive fellow who got left in the dust. Here's a good cop with a bad decision to make. And here's a bad mother who messes up her kids. And we're not called upon to ponder the intricacies that are always present in real life. And so we think of humanness as being icky. And I think that's a real shame, because it means that we're turning our backs on the responsibility that we have, I think, the responsibility to bear the burden of the mystery of what it is that we're up to in life. F. Scott Fitzgerald said the sign of a genius is a man who can keep two opposing thoughts in his head at the same time. And I think that his work certainly shows his ability to keep many thoughts in his head at one time, but I don't think you have to be a genius to do this. I think you just have to be open. And fiction helps us keep open. It prevents us from being dogmatic. When I read John Updike's Rabbit at Rest, which is the final book of his rabbit series, I was struck with the fact that this man, Rabbit, he does some pretty despicable things. He's disregarding of his wife, He's not generous toward his longtime mistress. His son drives him nuts. And his daughter-in-law's distress, he answers by sleeping with her. This is when my own father-in-law put the book down and said, I can't read that. It's too disgusting. And certainly, that is the right of any reader to, to find something too disgusting to continue with, because we make choices like that in life all the time. And in reading, why shouldn't we make those choices as well? But for those people like me, who apparently have higher thresholds of disgustingness, <laughs> I was struck with the fact that as I read that book, I was kind of cheering for this man, this aging rabbit. 
And every time he shoved more orange Doritos or cheese puffs into his mouth, I thought, oh, don't do that. Your heart isn't good. <laughs> and by the end of the book, which I won't spoil, even though the title kind of does, um, I felt as though I'd lost a good friend. I really did. Now, why? I, I guess I think it's because Updike managed to, to paint this man as so human that the so-called ickily human part of him disappeared for me. And this is what I think fiction can do. It can, at its best, give us a break from being judgmental. I think, at its best, fiction can make us bigger. The experiences that we gather in life and our accumulated losses, and all of this should, should by itself, make us bigger. But it doesn't necessarily. We know this by looking around at people as they age. Some get bigger and some get bitter. And the problem that we're struggling against is that we are locked forever behind our own two small eyes. But you open the right book and there it is. Look how everyone else has stumbled along. I'm not alone in this. And even better, when I pass that man in the grocery store who seems gruff and unpleasant and icky, I don't have to see him that way only. I have Rob Rabbit Angstrom now as a friend, and so I know that everyone is a thousand times more complicated than what they appear to be. So fiction should help us with our limitation of vision. Now, let's think about limitation of language. The fabulous poet Louise Glick says, we look at life once in childhood, the rest is memory. Another poet, Edna St. Vincent Millay, said, Childhood is the kingdom where nobody dies. What both these lines say to me is that the impressions of childhood are fundamentally truthful and as yet uncorrupted. But if we look at life once in childhood and the rest is memory, where is that memory going to come from? From the language that we're taught to use to capture it. And if childhood is the kingdom where nobody dies, what do we do with the bombardment of realities and losses that are to follow? The memories and understandings of our adult lives are shaped by language. And this language is so frequently distorted that I think we need to at least consider it in this discussion on the importance of fiction. A few times I've heard an exasperated mother say to her young children, oh, I could just kill you or I'm gonna knock your heads together. Well, first of all, you know, children are very literal, so it's distressing right there, but if one argues, and people do all the time, oh, that child knows she really doesn't wanna kill them, it's just a way of talking. Well, I still say, then what is the child to make of language? How is the child supposed to learn to give voice himself to the complexities of life? Or, to come at this another way, on the floor of my more recent apartment building in New York, um, a mother, I mean the one I moved from that I'd lived in a long time, but um, a mother threw a birthday party for her three-year-old son. I do miss that building. Um, and okay, given that we don't know anyone, as I just said, she really is, does seem to be a really lovely person. So the party was big and it lasted all afternoon and there was a lot of commotion and people coming and going and naturally the child became overly excited and at the end of the day I heard the child crying saying, I hated my birthday, I hated it. And the mother said soothingly, 
You didn't hate your birthday. You had a lovely birthday. Now, it's not my job, thank goodness, right here now to discuss how, or anywhere, to discuss how best to socialize our children. Um, that's not what I'm here for. But I'm, I am here to point out the use of language that we grow up with. So this same child has two brothers and they often fight and one can be heard saying, not, not that often, but saying fiercely, I hate my brother. And this really nice mother patiently says, you don't hate your brother, you love your brother. But I think at the moment the child is speaking with the fury and impotence and narcissistic rage that children feel, I think he really does hate his brother and I really think he did hate his birthday. And when we are told as we are by our well-meaning mothers and fathers and teachers, that what we feel simply is not true, then how, as we develop, do we recognize our own feelings? How do we know what we are feeling? And why does this matter? I think it matters because to live unconsciously is to live only half of life. And to live half unconsciously cheats those who live with us from having the full and honest and complicated experience of a real life partner or parent or family member. And because if we don't know what we're feeling, we don't know what we're doing. And as Isabel Goodrow realizes in Amy and Isabel, what we do matters. For many years, I taught an eight o'clock morning class. And within the first week, it always became clear to me who the students were that were gonna be perpetually late. And I got very interested in this because each student would say, well, the subway was late or there was a traffic jam. And they actually would believe this. I mean, I'm sure it was true, but, but they would believe that each time their lateness had a specific reason. And they wouldn't see that they were coming in late every single day. They simply didn't see that they were undermining themselves and the rest of the class by always stepping through that door 15 minutes late. So I got really interested in it and I did some reading and one theory is that these people simply have a different concept of time. But most of what I read suggested that people who are habitually late are unconsciously angry. And I'm not trained in psychology so I'm not you know, gonna pretend um, that I am, but I have read so many novels, I feel a little bit trained in psychology. <laughs> and I know that those students were up against a lot. They had families and they had jobs and small kids and very little time to work and it wouldn't surprise me at all if in fact they'd been angry at a lot of things. But if they didn't dare know that or feel that, they're just gonna continue to undermine themselves and that's just a tiny example. I'm a person who always shows up ridiculously early and it wasn't until my mother-in-law, who'd had years of analysis, by the way, said to me one day, Liz, how long have you been compulsively early? <laughs> I didn't even know until then that it was pathological. <laughs> I show up early because I expect disaster. But when I read novels about people who are so anxiety-ridden expecting disaster, Anita Bruckner's characters, for example, I get a glimpse of how tiresome that is for those around me. So I have tried to be compulsively and neurotically early in a more private fashion. <laughs> it's true. Anyway, let's get back to language because um, the connection I'm trying to make here is that um, 
We, we only have to look around at the endless streams of advertisements coming our way, the catalogs. I love looking through catalogs. The greeting cards, and so much of what bombards us tells us a false story. This is how other people live, all these things say to us. In this television ad, no one is yelling. The mother is mopping the floor and smiling. The father is walking the dog and smiling. And I think sometimes now there's even a father who's loading the dishwasher and smiling. And it can create a very lonely feeling audience, I think, if they don't, if we, any of us can't recognize our own lives there. Or worse, it can create an audience who feels compelled to live falsely, denying to themselves that what they really feel is so wrong and awful and unspeakable that they won't speak it. They won't even acknowledge to themselves that they feel it. And so we need fiction. I've been really surprised by the number of people who, after reading Olive Kittredge, have said to me, you must be a mother-in-law. I'm not. They say, you must have a son. I don't. And then they say, well, how do you know then? And they'll tell me that what Olive felt as she stole her new daughter-in-law's bra and one shoe is something they can sympathize with deeply. And I am always moved by this. My point is, it's out there. No one actually has ever told me that they stole their daughter-in-law's bra or shoe or marked up her clothes with a magic marker. And in fact, I personally don't know anyone who's done those things. But there are people who are certainly out there cheering Olive on. <laughs> and there's a huge difference between a thought and an act. The law makes that distinction, even if some religions don't. But if reading about the actions of Olive helps people with the thought they may have, then I feel really glad. We all want to think that when our children get married, we're happy. We understand their lives do not and never did belong to us. And so we are, damn it all, happy. And hopefully many of us are. I haven't been put to um, that particular test yet myself, but that doesn't stop me from knowing how I'm supposed to feel. And yet, what if, in our dark little hearts, we don't actually feel that way? What if we can't understand why our children married such monsters or bores or tyrants? What if it scares us to death to ponder the reason they have married these people? What if it makes us feel just terrible? Where do we go? Well, hopefully to a close friend who will listen to our distress, but I think a lot of us balk quite naturally at the idea of complaining of going on too long about certain subjects in our lives that cause us pain. We don't want to put people off. And this is again why fiction matters. Because when you open a book and feel some sense of yourself accepted by the writer, well, when you open this book, it will never get tired of you. It is yours. The writer gives it to you and gives it to you freely, without conditions. And you have the comfort of knowing that no matter what you are up to, you have never slept with your daughter-in-law like Rabbit Angstrom did, and you have never behaved as badly as Olive. So really, you're all right. <laughs> Let me speak to you about um, the relationship between the reader and the writer. It's really important one for me. I write for a reader. I have never written for myself. Um, 
ever. Writing to me is an act of communication. It is, as Thomas Carlyle said, a thought that goes from one living mind to another. When you open a novel or a book of short stories, you embark upon your own private and intimate relationship with the narrative voice that rises up to you from the page. This is one reason that it's always a bit risky to leave your home and go see a writer in person, as you've all done tonight. <laughs> because she may not be what you imagined her to be according to that relationship you already feel you've had. When my first book, Amy and Isabel, was published, Vogue magazine wanted to do an interview with me. I'd never done an interview with anyone. This was even before my book tour. But my publicist at Random House thought it was a very big deal and got all excited, so I dressed up in a skirt and navy blue turtleneck sweater. I can remember exactly what I was wearing. And I got myself down to the village um, to meet the person from Vogue. And the very first thing this woman said when she came in and sat down was, you don't look at all like what I expected. <laughs> and it was unquestionably clear that she was disappointed. And um, obviously I never got over it, you can see that. <laughs> and the interview never ran, so there we are. But As a writer, my part of the relationship, as a writer um, from my side here, I feel responsible to the reader because I am responsible to the reader. And so think about that. When you pick up a book, or when, when we pick up a book, I think we become like children, hoping for and expecting someone to be in charge. We need to feel a sense of safety. Because as we read that book, we may look at things that are not safe feeling. We have emo may have emotions come to us that don't feel safe as we read along, but we are always safe in the hands of the reader. This, I think, we need to feel. And so what do I do to try and make a reader feel safe? Well, first and foremost, I try not to lie to them. I try not to write a sentence or a scene that's simply a shortcut to a cheap emotion. I try and let the reader earn their way with me. And by keeping the reader safe, I mean that I won't show off, hopefully. I won't have a subtext that whispers, see how clever I am and what big words I can use. It means I will use words try and use words that seem right and necessary for what I'm rendering. And it means I will try and find the sentence that can resonate with the dignity that the human experience deserves. A sentence of muscularity is what I'm looking for that can hold both the gravity and the felicity of returning us to our most primitive emotions. For me, it means finding the right sound that conveys the combination of truth and compassion because that's a combination I'm very interested in, truth and compassion. So let me give you an example of when my training for that began. Uh, I was a small child when my family attended a congregational church. And for those of you that aren't familiar with this denomination, in particular this New England uh, version, I, I have to tell you it's a very no-frills business. Plain is the name of that game. Um, people did not wear hats. But on one particular Sunday, my parents um, had a friend named Clara who was wearing a hat. And it was some hat. Um, I had never seen anything like it. Even now, it puzzles me. It had ribbons and fake fruit on it. and um, <laughs> Riding back to the house in the back seat, um, I listened to my mother say to my father, now why in hell would Clara wear that hat? 
And of course I was relieved because you know, she was voicing my own bafflement. And my father said, there was nothing wrong with that hat. And if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. That was a common refrain of my father's. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Which is, you know, it's such a great idea, but it is death to a writer. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> and I, I think that began my conscious awareness of the struggle that I would live with, both as a person and, of course, as a writer, that juxtaposition between um, bald truths and decency. Because the trouble was, I knew perfectly well that day that my father was the more decent person. But my mother was a lot more interesting <laughs> when she said these things that were true. So my job as a writer has been to find the language that can convey both, the lack of judgment and the truth of observation. Now, in real life, we make judgments all the time, and I think, frankly, we should. We decide who's mean, who's stingy, who's generous, who's kind, who can be counted on. This is how we maneuver our way through the mess of human interactions, and yet, it's tiresome. It's tiresome to be thinking that such and such is right and that so and so is wrong. It's tiresome when our old friend Sam, who has supported us through many tribulations, now actually seems irritated by our sudden good fortune. What's that about? Sam, we think. I was supposed to be able to count on Sam. It's tiresome even when we know that no one is either good or bad all the time. Any piece of fiction worth its salt will remind us of this. Any good piece of fiction will remind us that the bafflement we experience in living is a correct response to the messiness of how complicated we all are. I had a professor in college who used to say, compose yourself in a composition. And of course, you know, we all made a little fun of him rolling our eyes, compose yourself in a composition. But the truth is I've thought of that so many times. Something in me does compose myself when I write, and also there is something in us, I think, that feels more composed as we read. The messiness of experience becomes cohered, becomes coherent. The right sentences can calm us down, even as they lift us into states of joy or contemplation. I think, too, that any good piece of fiction should make us feel included, not excluded, as we read. We should feel invited in. When I read A Fine Balance by Coetin Mystery, I entered a world of poverty in India, and it was a, a, a poverty that I have never, ever seen or, thank God, experienced. I mean, I've never slept on a sidewalk or seen any, anything that was like, what was in that book. But even while reading about those extreme discomforts, I felt composed. I felt better. I wanted to return to that book each time I put it down. And I've thought about that. Why is that? And I, I think it's because the inner lives of those characters were presented with generosity and compassion, and there were enough feelings that I recognized. So I was cheering them on. And it was that amazing experience of the hugely new and comfortingly familiar. That book was a big, big tapestry of society and corruption and evil and despair and also hope. A huge canvas, a canvas that um, Kauta Mystery painted upon in he used what was natural to him. One job for the fiction writer is to know what their subject is. His subject was India. My subject has been New England. 
And I'm a big believer in the now rather old-fashioned idea that literature is place. Place in general is increasingly interesting to me, as, as you can tell from my um, relationship to Seattle and Syracuse. Um, I have, you know, I, th I mean, we all have some relationship to place. And I have a friend who was raised uh, in the army and, you know, moved every year or two and feels that she doesn't have any sense of place. And that's her story, the placelessness. And it's something very American, actually, in a certain way, about moving from place to place. Um, so that's, that would be her story. Um, I've been writing, I had been writing for many years before I started to figure this out. And I'd been living in New York for many years before I even realized that I came from New England. And that coming from New England meant I was different from someone who came from Louisiana or who grew up on the Upper East Side of New York. I think it's odd, frankly, that it took me so long to figure that out. But I think it's probably because my childhood was a very isolated one, um, so it took me longer to understand that I had a relationship with, with the rest of the world, and let alone what, what that relationship might be. But I figured this out in a stand-up comedy class that I took at the New School in New York. It was a trauma, I'm sorry. I had, been write, um, I, I, I had been writing stories for years and, you know, little pieces of success here and there, a few publications and magazines and journals. But then I went through this phase where I stopped being able to finish a story and that was very frightening. So I thought, well, what am I hiding? What am I lying about? Because I, I knew at that point I'd been writing long enough that when the writing went so poorly in such a dramatic way that something false was happening and I, I didn't know what it was. So that's why I decided to take that stand-up comedy class. And the reasoning is this. Um, it seemed to me that people laugh at something that's true, something the rest of us don't dare say. So I thought, well, what would happen if I had to stand there right in front of an audience and be responsible for making them laugh, as opposed to just scurrying away and writing my little stories where nobody can see me? I thought it would be like putting myself in a pressure cooker. What would pop out of my mouth? It's like the immediacy of the situation was appealing to me, um, theoretically. It was, it was terrifying, it really was, but I, I was compelled to do it and I did, and frankly, every, you know, every week somebody dropped out of that class, we just dropped like flies, it was so scary. But those of us that made it through had to perform at a comedy club in the city as kind of our final exam, and I did. Didn't let anybody come. But people were there, and it was horrifying. Anyway, but the point is, what did I talk about that night? What happened as a result of this? Well, I talked about hair. And this was before I wrote Amy and Isabel, where hair plays an important role. I didn't know that about myself. I know that now. I have hair issues. Um, I also talked a lot about my in-laws, who were genuine New Yorkers. But mostly what I did in, the, in that routine that night was that I made fun of myself and my Puritan roots, and that's when I began to understand. I had this particular thing that was essential to who I was, and much as I might not want to think so, which is that I am truly from Puritan stock. Eight generations on one side and ten generations on the other, and I am really, really white and kind of uptight. That was pretty much the substance of the piece. <laughs> so, I had subject, 
uptight white person, and place, New England, and I began to become a novelist. But that brings me to the question of voice. What voice would I find to carry the narrative of my work? And this is where the ear is essential. A writer has to listen very hard to hear the true voice from the false one. Now, I've already mentioned our first neighbors in New Hampshire, but our place in Maine was on a dirt road, and very few people lived on that road who were not my relatives. Mostly, they were great aunts. And because we had no television, and there were no other children around my age, my brother gave up on me very quickly as a playmate way back. Um, it was my idea of recreation to wander around from house to house and slip in and out and visit these old aunts of mine, and so I absorbed their voices. And they were a very crabby and disgruntled and deeply New England group of people. My Aunt Polly had taught third grade her entire life, and she hated children. And she would always stick her tongue out at me when I sat in her living room. And I mention this because it's so amazing to me what children accept as normal. It wasn't, it wasn't until I went to college and I, I started to go to the homes of my college friends that I realized, you know, their aunts, Catholics, Irish, Italian, Jewish, were pleasant. <laughs> but not so much in my family. Um, these women had a, a favorite pastime of discussing their husband's last meal. <laughs> Frank's last meal had been mackerel and Lucille, smoking a cigarette and looking absolutely dismal, would recall this again and again and say she was glad that she had happened just by coincidence to slice the potatoes that night rather than bake them because Frank had always preferred a sliced potato. She was quite certain of that. Then they would discuss which one of them would die first. They assumed it was gonna be my Aunt Dot because she had been three pounds when she was born and she was a highly nervous woman. But of course, poor, poor Aunt Dot lived forever. Actually, they all did. But this was the music. This was the sound of my youth. The language was dry and clipped and rhythmic. And there was one other time that I remember as recognizing the concept of voice, and that was when I went, after I graduated from college, which I went to in New England, um, I went to live for an, a year in England mostly because I, I wanted to avoid um, a job, getting a job, a job job. And I wanted to write. And when you graduate from college and tell people you want to be a writer, um, they tend to look at you as though you're embarrassing yourself <laughs> and, and sort of leaking some sort of grandiosity or something. Um, so, so I went to England and I worked in pubs and cleaned houses for, for old people and my father said, after such an expensive education, I have to tell people you're a barmaid. And it's, I didn't care what he told people. But when I, um, I wrote home, you know, I was working, I'm sorry to say, but it's true, I was working illegally, of course, in these pubs, and I was really frightened of getting arrested. And when I wrote home and said I was scared of getting arrested, my mother said, well, go ahead and get arrested. This shows you the difference between my parents. My father was so embarrassed that I was there working in a, pub and my mother said, go ahead and get arrested. They'll feed you in jail. <laughs> and it, it really calmed me down. Um, 
I, I stayed there for a year and then I just got worn out. So uh, on the day that I took the bus from London out to Heathrow, I got on that bus and it was filled with Americans. And they were so loud and their voices were all flat and twangy and I just loved them. <laughs> I loved the sound of those American voices and this American voice is something that I'm now part of and where I fit in to this continuum of our own particular changing language, but our language is, is something that um, is what I deal with every day when I go to the page. So I was developing this sense of voice, still am, and um, my mother herself had a fabulous sense of storytelling. She'd inherited this from her grandmother who would talk in the kitchen about the girls that had, the hired hands had gotten into trouble. I'm sure my father, um, if he'd been there, would not have approved of any of this. But any storyteller knows it's not really the substance of the story that matters, but the way in which it's told. And my mother had a real knack for that. Um, there's a line in one of my stories, I can't remember where, I don't think it's in Olive, but um, a mother says, complaining about psychiatrists, they go straight for the mother each time. <laughs> and it's true. And I go straight for my mother each time in discussing how I really became a writer because it is her fault. Um, it, you know, it wasn't just her storytelling voice that I absorbed or, or her uncanny lines like, well, you never know. Um, but it was her, also her own deep, deep interest in people. And nothing in my youth was as much fun as people watching with my mother on those occasions when we went into town and got off that dirt road. Well, there's a woman who's not anxious to get home, she'd say, <laughs> as we watched someone amble down the sidewalk. And I'd say, how do you know she doesn't want to get home? Well, take a look at her, Elizabeth. Does that woman look to you like she's anxious to get home? <laughs> and so I'd look and I'd look and I would see not only the woman who by that point had taken on the physical aspects of someone old beyond her years, but I would imagine the home she did not want to go to. I'd imagine the dark hallways that she might enter, the kitchen with its green tiles. I just couldn't stop my mind from imagining what it was like to be this woman. And that was part of you know, the legacy um, from my mother. An intuitive sparking of the imagination, and it is intuition. Uh, for many years I was married to a lawyer and that is a different kind of experience because it is expected that certain things require proof. <laughs> not, uh, not long ago I was sitting in a hotel room in Maine with my mother, just the two of us. She glanced out the window which was looking over the parking lot and she said, huh, second wife. Uh, but I said, because of all those years of lawyerly training, Mom, why are you always saying things like that? How do you know that? And then I went over to the window and I looked out and I said, oh, second wife. <laughs> and because we were alone, no proof was required. For a fiction writer, the proof is in the gut. We intuit what's true and what's not. And it is a visceral thing. 
We pay for our work with our bodies. There goes a lung, a piece of liver, the stomach is damaged permanently. Because writing is physical work, and this is one reason I write by hand. I need the physicality of earning my way through the sentence. And then I rewrite the sentence often many, many times. Because writing is an artifice, don't forget that. But it's the writer's job to make the reader feel that it's as natural as breathing. Just like when we watch an ice skater, we don't want to be aware of the effect. We want to simply be inside the experience. I want people to be feeling right along with Olive what it's like to be sitting in the living room of Louise Larkin. What it's like to be driving to the nursing home to see her husband. What it's like to have a date with a man when you are in your 70s. I want them to believe it. Not that long ago, I attended a talk on white-collar crime, just because I wanted to. Seriously, I just was interested. Um, and anyway, the lawyer who gave this talk about halfway through, so fabulous, leaned over the podium and she said with this great knowingness, just remember people, everybody lies. People lie and they lie all the time. And really what surprised me most was how the audience immediately started nodding their heads. <laughs> and it was, it was one of those moments that I thought, oh, right. And then I started thinking about, you know, how I tell people that I like their haircuts when I don't. Or I like their new glasses, you know, when I don't. I tell someone not to worry so much about their son, even though I actually think their son might be headed for trouble. And, you know, maybe those are harmless white lies or whatever, but I, I think when you add up all the stuff that escapes our mouth that is simply false, then you will realize how parched we are for the emotion, the sentence that is true. And you can find this, hopefully, in fiction. Because out here in the real world, there is clearly a sense of treachery that accompanies us. And the book that invites you inside should be safe. No matter what goes on in that book, you should feel safe. Life can be a really lonely business a lot of the time, but a whole lot less so when we stop feeling defensive or guilty and find out that our own story is really as old as the hills. So we go to fiction to find comfort, escape, and I think sometimes as well a feeling of transcendence. Jan Martel, who wrote Life of Pi, says, that it's through literature that one can see life through the other, and that this makes us better people. He thinks literature can make politicians better leaders, and at one point was reportedly sending the Canadian Prime Minister a new book of fiction every two weeks with a handwritten note on why the book was worth reading. <laughs> to my knowledge, the Prime Minister um, has yet to write back, and until I hear that he has, I've, I've held off sending any books to Nancy Pelosi or Harry Reid. <laughs> but I share, I share Martel's belief that fiction can and should help widen our vision and exercise our muscle of compassion and therefore improve our lives considerably and the lives of those we touch. And so I say now to that man who accused his novelist daughter of devoting her life to telling lies, no, she does not. She devotes her life to trying to save lives as much as you do as a doctor. And to that boy down the hall from me who screamed that he hated his birthday, I have no idea how, how as he grows up he's gonna remember that birthday. I suspect he'll remember the goodwill of his mother. 
But I hope that someday he can pick up a book and recognize that sense of impotent rage he once felt and still feels at times, because who doesn't? And feel better about it, feel okay about it, seeing that it's not a crime to be human. That in fact, reading is a celebration of the mystery of ourselves. And reading can connect ourselves to another in a way that's ultimately unique and ultimately necessary. Because what do we have in this life if not each other? Thank you. Thank you so much. I thought maybe we'd begin by starting to talk about how one sets the stage for the rest of the book. Um, and if you could read, start by reading the opening paragraph or two of Amy and Isabel, and then the opening uh, paragraph of Olive Kitteridge, and then talk a bit about what you take into consideration um, with getting a book off the ground. Um, sure. Um, I have not read this first paragraph aloud for a long time. <laughs> I want to do it right. Okay. This is yeah. This evening is okay. It was terribly hot that summer Mr. Robertson left town, and for a long while the river seemed dead, just a dead brown snake of a thing lying flat through the center of town, dirty yellow foam collecting at its edge. Strangers driving by on the turnpike rolled up their windows at the gagging sulfur smell and wondered how anyone could live with that kind of stench coming from the river and the mill. But the people who lived in Shirley Falls were used to it, and even in the awful heat, it was only noticeable when you first woke up. No, they didn't particularly mind the smell. What people minded that summer was how the sky was never blue, how it seemed instead that a dirty gauze bandage had been wrapped around the town, squeezing out whatever bright sunlight might have filtered down, blocking out whatever it was that gave things their color, and leaving a vague flat quality to hang in the air. This is what got to people that summer, made them uneasy after a while. And there were other things too, Further up the river, crops weren't right. Pole beans were small, shriveled on the vine. Carrots stopped growing when they were no bigger, bigger than the fingers of a child. And two UFOs had apparently been sighted in the north of the state. Rumor had it the government had even sent people to investigate. What would you like to know? Oh. Do you want to read? Oh, oh yes. Yeah. Excuse me. This is the first paragraph. I read two paragraphs, I'm sorry. No, 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 that was right. Um, this is the first paragraph from the first story. For many years, Henry Kittredge was a pharmacist in the next town over, driving every morning on snowy roads or rainy roads or summertime roads when the wild raspberries shot their new growth in brambles along the last section of town before he turned off to where the wider road led to the pharmacy. Retired now, he still wakes early and remembers how mornings used to be his favorite, as though the world were his secret, tires rumbling softly beneath him and the light emerging through the early fog, the brief sight of the bay off to his right, 
then the pines, tall and slender, and almost always he rode with the window partly open because he loved the smell of the pines and the heavy salt air, and in the winter he loved the smell of the cold. Elizabeth visited West Seattle High School this morning and um, was talking to some, some of the students there. And one of the things that you, you said um, in your writing is that as, as you work on, on a novel, you, you frequently go back and uh, rework the, how you started out because it's changed. As, you've, as your writing has gone on, the beginning of the story has, has altered. Um, what do you take into consideration when you, when you go back and look at how you're starting a book? What's, what's important for you to be saying to the reader? Well, you know, it's, it's, the first, it's the first time the reader meets you. It's so important. And um, that first page of Amy and Isabel, I, I'd probably written, you know, I don't know how many drafts of the book before I finally wrote that first page. And I'm... I can't even tell you. If I knew, I couldn't tell you accurately how many times I rewrote that first page and then the second page and the third page. Because, so what goes through my mind? Or like, how do I? Well, it, like with Amy and Isabel, I was broadening. Um, the, the book was becoming larger in, um, not in pages, but larger. I was looking for a larger narrative voice. As the book began to try and shape itself, I, I recognized that the narrative voice had to, had to be a, a bigger one. And, and so how was I going to find that? And so that's what I was looking for in that first paragraph. And um, that sense of taking, taking my time and hoping the reader would stick with me. Um, you're clearly, clearly drawn to writing about um, difficult and, and challenging characters. How do you re relate um, to the characters that you're writing about? I love them. <laughs> I do. They drive me nuts. But, um, you know, I, I, I love them. I don't think I could write about a character mm -hmm. if I didn't have that feeling of, of uh, you know, they're just, they're so interesting to me. And, and so I, I love them. It's, that, it's kind of that simple. What kind of research do you do to, uh, when, when you're writing? Um, certainly in, in the second book, Abide With Me, uh, there, there's a lot of, uh, you get into theology, um, you talk about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Mm. I'd certainly never heard of it. Can you talk a oh, bit really? about how you set that up? I, I, I love Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I do now. Yeah, I'm glad there are yeah. a few. Um, boy, what a long relationship I have with Dietrich Bonhoeffer by the time that book got done. Um, <laughs> you know, because you, well, I, okay, so I was writing about a minister in Abide With Me, and I thought, well, you know, I, I mean, I wanted to do it, and I'd gotten well underway when I realized that, um, wow, I, I sort of got myself in a jam here because I don't have a theological education, and and everything that this man is, is going through, he's going to have, his reference points are going to be you know, part of, part of being a minister. So I, I, it took me seven years to write that book, and, and a lot of it I was, I was reading. Um, I had five different Bibles open in, in, in my workspace the whole time, and I carried the Psalms with me everywhere I went on the subway, you know, making notes. And, um, and I talked to so many ministers, and I went to Bangor Theological Seminary up in um, Bangor, Maine, and they were very nice to me. They found me old uh, catalogs of what 
a man at Tyler's age would have been taking for courses, you know, systemic theology. Then I had to find out what systemic theology was. So I, you know, I had I spent a lot of time immersed in and be, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I mean, you know, Tyler Kasky loves Dietrich Bonhoeffer, so I had to love Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So what was that going to be like? Woo. <laughs> this, you know, this, it was great though. I can't believe I'm saying that. It was, it was great a lot of the time. It was also not so great a lot of the time. That's the truth. Well, perhaps more than one person in the audience wonders this. So, Elizabeth, what happened to your leg? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so sad about the shoes. Um, I was walking down the street in New York, and I broke my ankle. And that's exactly the story. How did you manage to keep the writing of your first novel a secret for seven years? Nobody was interested. It wasn't... <laughs> I really wasn't very hard. <laughs> what is the essence of writing with a sense of place, uh, and how do you define it? Yeah. That's good. Um, okay. Uh, I don't know. I, I, how do I define it? You know, place, place, um, okay, I'm going to make a big leap here. And, and when I was in law school, which I did return to, by the way, and I also took a graduate degree in gerontology along the way. And I remember in a um, class on aging, they said, well, as people age, they want to go back to their childhoods. And I thought, <laughs> Not me. Which is, you know, then I realized that would be sort of the, the, the billboard for human life, not me. We all think whatever it is, not me. But anyway, so now I'm at a certain age and I, you know, and I'm, and I'm back in Maine part of the time and I, and I have missed it. And the, the point I'm getting at is that I think that our, our immediate, you know, uh, sensations of the physical world are, are formed at such a tender age and susceptibility for the senses that that we that's our relationship to the world whatever our place is is how we're going to define ourselves with the world and so we am I making any sense or maybe we should go to the next one well this is a sort of a follow up question um, Joyce wrote all of his books <laughs> we'll keep her on this topic Joyce wrote all of his books after he left Ireland. How would your books be different, do you think, if you were still living in New England? I might not have read them, I mean, written mm -hmm. them or read them. Um, I, I, I don't, I, I've thought about that. I, I probably wouldn't have written them because, I, like I said, I didn't even know. I had to live in New York for 25 years. Well, not at that. It was earlier when I took the. I mean, I, I lived there a long time before I understood that I was from New England. I didn't get it. Mm. And so if I'd stayed in New England, I really wouldn't have gotten it. What's to get? You're just there. Um, were there stories or chapters that you wrote uh, for Olive Kitteridge that were, that were left out uh, when you put together the final book? Um, and do you keep those stories? Yeah, you know, I just found one the other day, um, moving. Um, about half a story of Olive, another little piece of another Olive story. 
And, you know, I liked it. Um, and I thought, that's right. I meant to get that in there. <laughs> but my feeling is that if I really wanted to get it in there, I would. I'm a very unorganized person or disorganized. I don't know which is the proper... Um, Way to say, anyway, I'm not an organized person at all. But there's a method to my madness, basically. And I think that, um, I think I would have gotten that story in there if, if I'd meant to. <laughs> it's done now. <laughs> That's true, they don't issue, reissue novels with new work in them, generally. Um, <laughs> Here's a, a follow-up to, to um, Olive uh, Kitteridge. Um, how and when did you come up with the idea of compiling a loosely linked set of stories um, into sequential chapters? Um, when I wrote the first Olive story, the first complete Olive story, which I think is the one at her son's wedding, when she steals the bra, um, I may be misremembering, but I, but I think that was the first complete olive story I wrote, and she was there. She was standing there on the lawn, and boy, you know, that was it. And when I wrote that story, I realized, oh, I'm going to write um, a book of olive stories. That's how I saw it, and I thought I would call it The Olive Stories. But um, my publisher thought something else, so it didn't have stories on the front. But I thought I would write a book of stories about olive, and, um, and then as I was doing it, I realized she's a lot to take. I wouldn't want to, as the reader, I wouldn't want to open every story and see Olive right there every time myself. So I, um, you know, and, I, and I'm interested in other people. You know, I'm interested in point of view, and I like the way that uh, we, you know, Olive is so huge in her own universe, but there's somebody else over here who just sees her fleetingly and I like that. So it was a way of giving the reader a break and also describing a whole landscape. Uh, would you comment um, on the idea that we're all survivors of our parents' childhoods, as this seems to describe one of the themes in Olive Kitteridge and is certainly um, a central theme in Amy and Isabel? Well, we're certainly partly survivors of our parents' childhood. I mean, I, I, you know, I just don't know. I go back and forth on this all the time. You know, I don't know. How can we know what, why we are the way we are? You know, whether, um, it does seem that there's a lot of things that repeat, and, um, and that's interesting to me. The older I get, the, the more puzzled I am about all the other elements that go into what makes a person so um, but there but there are there sure are repetitions that go through families you know and and they they're, they're interesting to me but I, I don't I don't get it I mean I don't really know much about any of that I just write what um, I'm not I'm, I'm gonna stop talking right now for a moment. <laughs> you go. Uh, what is your writing process? Uh, do you write every day? Um, always handwrite first? Uh, I don't write every day. I, I w wish I did, but I don't. Um, I, I'm, I, 
I write by hand. I, I always write by hand. The first drafts are always by hand. Um, and I'll make it, I'll write by hand as long as I can and make it as, you know, until I can't read it, basically. And then I'll type it up and print it out and start to make it messy again. I do like mess. I do. It's true. And egos? Yes, I do like egos as well. She told the yes. I do. I, um, had broken that habit for a while, but, um... <laughs> It's a nice thing to look forward to a frozen waffle in the middle of a work morning. <laughs> what was the last book that you read twice? Oh, um, well, there are pieces of books that I read all the time, reread. Oh, my goodness. Um, I guess. Well, I just reread the biography of John Cheever by ba Blake Bailey. I don't know why I read that twice. It was good, but I don't know why I read it twice, but I did. <laughs> I read a lot of things twice. How do you think about humor in, in, in your work? Um, it sort of threads its way through your books. There's a hilarious part, I, I thought of, uh, in Isabel, Amy and Isabel, where Isabel decides that she's going to become a reader and, she's, yeah. and, she, and she picks Hamlet. Yeah. Yeah, there was somebody in New York who told me that he, he disliked the whole book because of that scene. He just thought it was too cloying. You know, it hurt my feelings. I didn't think it was necessary for him to tell me. But, but it's hard once somebody tells you that to go back and look at that scene. Because then, it, you know, it seemed... But um, I just, you know, I, had, I just had a good time writing that scene. I just had a good time. You know, I just imagined. I thought, well, what's it like? You know, I took a philosophy class in college. I was telling this to somebody recently. I had to drop it because I, I couldn't understand it. And so what's it like for somebody like, you know, Isabel Goodrow to decide to read Shakespeare cold? I mean, a lot of people do, and they do it successfully, and a lot of people take philosophy courses successfully, but... You know, so, you know, I just, and I just thought, poor Isabel. <laughs> I'm glad you found it funny. My mother thinks my books are very funny, and I think, I love her for that. Other people think, you know, they're dark and stuff like that, but she, you know. She well, I love that funny. Isabel thought that, you know, he was, after she reads for a while, she thinks he's being too melodramatic. <laughs> I mean, how can you not find that funny? And then she got irritated because uh, she didn't like Shakespeare because frailty, thy name is woman or something. And anyway. Yeah, well, thank you. You're welcome. That's how I felt when I wrote it. <laughs> Until then, yeah. Aww. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not familiar with the, uh, with the writer Sarah Arn. Orn Jewett. Yeah. Um, do you That's because you don't come from me. Association with, with, with her in any way, or is it? Um, well, I was certainly brought up. Mrs. Wilcox, my eighth grade English teacher, was just absolutely crazy about her, and a lot of people are. Um, she's supposed to represent a real main thing. You know, I actually honestly never quite got it personally. Hmm. Just a couple last uh, questions. Um, Someone said they've read Abide With Me and they're wondering how you could write so accurately about a minister's life. 
Well, thank you, whoever said that, thank you. Um, well, because I taught, I mean, I taught, because I, I lived it. I really, really went, I just dove in there head first with that book and, and stayed, stayed in those waters a long time. And I was very lucky to have ministers. They were wonderful. I have to tell you, ministers, you know, I think they're dying to talk to people about their jobs, really. <laughs> and, and, and one thing I did learn about, you know, having written about a minister, of course, the minister I was writing about was 1959, but, you know, I think that's a lonely job. That's a hard, hard job. Mm -hmm. So they were, they were wonderfully generous with me. Um, and, and once I was in there, I, I, you know, I had to see it through. So I, I just took a lot of time. And I lived it as, as much as I could. But I'm, I'm glad it seems accurate. How, how, how or is your writing impacted by what's happening uh, politically, culturally? You know, I think more and more it's impacted um, by what's happening politically and culturally. I think that it wasn't in my earlier years of writing um, because I think that I was not, you know, I think I, I wasn't looking up as much. You know, I was more focused on, well, what they used to call the tea towel, you know, women write on the tea towel or something, some horrible sort of expression like that. But but I, I was more downward looking and I was trying to figure out sentences. I was learning my craft, um, which is not done. You know, it's, you're always learning your craft. It's always changing. But, but I do think that the, I, I've noticed in my work that my work has taken on a, what I think, you know, of, of sort of looking up and right. You know, Amy and Isabel was very, you know, there's a lot of stuff about class in there. Mm. And, um, but it's also a very claustrophobic book in a certain kind of way, just this you know mother and daughter thing, and then abide with me was more going back to 1959 in that particular environment, and all of Kittredge is pushing the boundaries a little bit of what what's going by, you know the mm -hmm. drugstores and the, this and that, and and I, I I can see in myself just getting uh, you know looking up a little more and becoming more available to have different things in my work than I probably was before. And there's a fourth novel. <sighs> we Mostly. hope. We so hope. There's something. Well, I know we hope so, too. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. That was Elizabeth Strout at Seattle Arts and Lectures in 2011. This was Sal on Air, a podcast featuring some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 30 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Support for the inaugural season of Sal on Air comes from the MJ Murdoch Charitable Trust. To hear more from Sal on Air, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Jack Straw Cultural Center. Special thanks to the Seattle Arts and Lectures staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to Daniel Spills for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Ruth Dickey, and this has been the first edition of Sal on Air from Seattle Arts and Lectures. <laughs>